Thanks to the worship team, especially Michael and Calvin, for filling in today. Chris and Jill and their family are vacationing. I think they're in Texas right now. I think they were heading for somewhere warm. Wasn't that great yesterday? Didn't you just enjoy the weather so much? Get out there, get your garden started, whatever it was that you were doing outside yesterday. But it looks a little nicer here today. We've been talking the last couple weeks about um, the idea that for a lot of us growing up as kids, just the idea of being the king or the queen maybe sounded like an exciting proposition. Because if you could be the king then you could be in charge of the world, and that could be you know, just for you, and you could, you could make decisions that benefited you, and you could have power, and you could have prestige, and people could know who you are, and you could be a big deal. You could be like the big, the big cheese. The big cheese, yeah, yeah, that's what you could be if you were the king. Last week we talked about that for some, it's not that you want to be in charge of everything and have all that power. It's just that it sounds like adventurous and fun, doesn't it? And uh, to, to, you know, to have something different because life can be so monotonous, it can be so boring and so routine, and just to have something different to try, different to do, and to have the resources to do something different, that would be fun as well. But you know what? Not everybody wants to be king or queen. In fact, to some of you, I said, okay, you know what? Here's your opportunity. If you'd like, we've got the crown right here. We'll put it on your head this morning. You could be king or queen. You'd be like, eh, no thanks. Like, do you remember, like, um, Mia Thermopolis? That name ring a bell? We've got to take you back, like, 20 years ago. Let's, let's get Mia's picture up here if we can. You remember her? Yeah, that was the Disney movie, The Princess Diaries. And uh, she was just a teenager somewhere out there in California going to school and just minoring her own business when her grandmother arrives on the scene and says, hey, you can be the next queen of Genovia. And Mia's like, no, thank you. And that's the whole story of the whole movie, how she didn't really want to be the queen. Maybe because of the attention, maybe because of the expectations, maybe because of the stress. I don't really know. But the whole thing seemed kind of overwhelming to her. Well, if we back up a slide, this was me. There's the king there. Yes, I just want to make sure we didn't miss that. And we had Mia there. And then, um, then the next slide. Well, she eventually accepted, and she became the princess of Genovia, and to my knowledge, she is still the princess of Genovia, because I think Julie Andrews is still alive, and so that means that she hasn't been able to take that over. But just to compare the two there of of Princess Mia and me, there we go. I'm thinking, like, who looks like more stately, more regal? I don't, more smug. I don't know what the word would be there, but uh, just uh, who has the better throne? How about that? That was on my trip to the Cheese Castle there. But you know, the truth of the matter is that not everybody wants to be queen or not everybody wants to be king because of what comes with that. And I think that was the case with the person that we've been talking about here for the last several weeks, and that is Esther. Esther was a Jewish girl who grew up in Persia. So it was kind of home to her, but that's not where her people were from. And the Persians were in charge, so it wasn't really her thing. She was a foreigner there in that place. She was an orphan. She had been raised by an uncle. Maybe he was a cousin, but his name was Mordecai. But then one day in the kingdom, everything changed. Because one day in the kingdom, there was a, an event that happened in the palace, and you know, maybe on the other side of the city, even for where she was. 
But Queen Vashti, who had been the queen of the kingdom, had been banished for refusing to appear when the king uh, had instructed her to come. And so the decree had gone out through all the kingdom that Vashti was going to be replaced. And so they were out drafting, recruiting, actually you know, making mandatory that any beautiful young women would be brought in and then the king would take his pick from those women. And so Esther, as a foreigner, gets brought in there and with these other young women who are being round up, and the idea is that she's going to spend a night with the king, and if it's as sleazy as it sounds. And unfortunately, Esther is collected, presented to the king, and she's exploited, but she eventually becomes married to this non-Jew, and I'm not sure that's what she would have picked, but that's what actually happens to her. And if you'd asked her at that moment, did you want to be Queen Esther? Well, I'm like, no, thank you. Because of what it required and what I had to go through to become the queen. I'm not interested in that. And then it gets, in a sense, I don't know, worse, but it gets different in that there's this huge crisis in the kingdom. And there's been this decree that's gone out through all the kingdom that the Jews are all going to be killed, of which Esther is one. And she's called upon to be the one who has to stand in and speak up and say something. And so this girl who's really had no voice in her life, who's been victimized, all of a sudden is thrust into this role of prominence where it's, it feels like, at least, it's all on her shoulders to rescue the, the Jews from what's going on in this kingdom. And to her credit, she chooses to act and she takes on this responsibility. And we don't really know exactly what her plan is. And if you're coming late to the story, I apologize. It's a little hard to, keep, uh, to, keep, uh, to catch you up. But she, there's this plan that's out there, and it's, it's been put in place by a guy by the name of Haman. And Haman is second in the kingdom. He's just underneath the king. And he's got the, 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 the ring, which means he can make the laws. And he's put out this decree throughout all of Persia that all of the Jews are going to be killed. Now, it's not coming for a while. It's not coming to the end of the year. We're still in the first month of the year. It's coming, not yet. But this decree goes out. Well, unbeknownst to the king, his queen actually happens to be a Jew who's going to be killed in this extermination that Haman has set up here. And so Haman, or excuse me, so, so Esther comes in to beseech the king to say, hey, wait a minute, can you stop this? Well, there's another person in the story here by the name of Mordecai. We've mentioned him. He's Esther's uncle. But he and Haman kind of had this thing. They're kind of going at it here. And so Haman is just like furious with Mordecai, who happens to be a Jew. That's partly why he's trying to get rid of these Jews. But we, picked, we looked at the story last week where Esther has accepted the challenge to come in and to, to speak to the king on the Jews' behalf. And she invites the king and she invites this Haman to this banquet. And they come and sit down in the banquet. And Esther, the king's like, Esther, what do you want? And Esther's like, well, could you come back tomorrow? And we don't really know why her reason was, if that was part of the plan. Or maybe she just sensed that she needed to back off. Or maybe she chickened out. We don't really know. But they all go home. But as they go home, Haman runs across Mordecai, his, his nemesis, his arch enemy. And he just gets infuriated. He's like, I've got to do something about this Mordecai. And he gets home to his friends and his family like, well, you got the ring. I mean, you got the power. Just have him executed. And he's like, oh, why didn't I think of that? And so he actually has these gallows built. The only thing he really actually needs is permission from the king because it is going to be an execution. And so he's planning on first thing in the morning he's going to talk to the king. 
Well, the king goes home from that same banquet, and he can't sleep. And because he can't sleep, he calls in some of his, his servants and says, you know, get out the history books, the chronicles of the kingdom, and just read them to me. Maybe that will put me to sleep. And so he start, they start reading these stories of the kingdom, and they pick this place that happened like five years ago where there had been a coup and where there had been an attempt to overthrow the king, and the person who got wind of it was this Mordecai. And he had gone and, and, and shared that with the king and the whole coup had been thwarted. And so the king is like, well, did this Mordecai ever get rewarded for that? And they're like, no, he didn't. He's like, okay, that's what we're doing in the morning. We're going to honor this Mordecai. And Haman, what he's doing in the morning is we're going to kill this Mordecai. And so we have this collision course coming. And so the king's in the morning and he's like, you know what, we got to figure out what we're doing here. Is anybody around that can help me think this through? And like, well, Haman is. We said, well, bring him in. So he says to Haman, what? Hey, how do we honor somebody that, that really means a lot to the king? And Haman's like, oh, this is for me, isn't it? And he's feeling good about it. He says, how about if we do this, put a royal robe on him and, and put him on uh, the, the royal horse and lead him through the city and, and, and have him shout, this is the man that the king wants to honor. And, and I think Haman could just picture himself here, receiving all this adulation and, and, and all this impressive, you know, people cheering for him. And he's feeling really good. And, and the king says to him, that is a great idea, Haman. Go get Mordecai and do that for him. And we have this huge plot twist. And the whole story turns right there. And so Haman is forced to take his bitter enemy. And he goes through the town saying, this is the one that the king wants to honor. This is the one that the king wants to honor. And he goes home and he tells his wife. And his wife says what? Oh, you're done for, buddy. And before the night is done, he's gone back to a banquet with the king and with Esther and he's been exposed, and he's actually been taken out and executed. And that's the story, except for the fact there's all these loose ends to the story. We found out last week what happens to Haman. That's a loose end. But we don't know really what happens to Esther and Mordecai. And we still don't know what happens to the Jews. Because there's still this decree out there in the kingdom that all the Jews are going to be killed on the 12th month. And so as we go to the story this week, we're in what they call in a story technically the denouement. And maybe that's a familiar term to you, maybe it's not. But the idea of any story is it comes to a climax where the conflict is resolved, but there's all these loose ends, and we do have these loose ends to wrap up. And so that's what we're doing as we go to the story this week. We're wrapping up those loose ends. Haman, we've already got taken care of, but what happens to Esther, what happens to Mordecai, and what happens to the Jews? Well, we've seen, first of all, and we talked about this last week, that there's retribution for Haman. He had plotted to kill all the Jews, and this was racially motivated and maybe religiously motivated, but he's plotted to kill all the Jews. And what happens is the plot changes, the plot twists, and he's the one who's actually killed. And he's killed on the gallows that he himself built and Haman receives justice. And so that's the first thing that we see is we see retribution for Haman. But then we need to find out what happens to the rest of the characters in the story. And that's in chapter 8 of Esther. And we're going to read in verse number 1. Esther chapter 8, verse number 1. 
That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. So Haman was killed. So the king says, everything that belonged to Haman, it now belongs to you, Esther. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told him how he was related to her. And the king never knew this evidently before this time. But Esther says, by the way, this is my uncle. And the king's like, oh, the guy that we just honored here. And the king took off his signet ring. This is really important here. He took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. And Esther, she didn't really need the estate. She's the queen. She says, here, Haman, or here Mordecai, you can have Haman's estate. And so this is what happens next here. There's a ring that's given to Mordecai. And if you remember last week, we talked about how the structure of this book is. It's chiastic structure, how it comes down in, 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 in a, like in an X, like the Greek letter chi. And it reaches the, the, the climax, and then it mirrors itself on the way back out. We're starting to see the mirroring of this story. There's, if, if you go back to the beginning, there's a big banquet, and we celebrated Xerxes' greatness. And then Haman was elevated, and then he made a decree, and then the the city, we're told, was bewildered. And then Mordecai and Esther hatched this plan. Then Esther goes before the king. And then there's a banquet. And then there's this sleepless night. Now the whole story starts to reverse itself out of there. And so we have a second banquet. And we have the ring given to a different person. And we're about to have a new, about to have a new decree that goes out. But this is what we see in this story. Get to verse number three. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the golden scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. And she keeps going, if it pleases the king, and if it regards me with favor and thinks it's the right thing to do, if he's pleased with me, let an order be written to overrule the decree that Haman put out there. Verse number six, for I can't stand to see disaster fall on my people. I can't stand to see the destruction of my family. And Xerxes says, well, I already had Haman killed. What are, else are you looking for here? But we see this, this reversal here, though, shows up in this next statement. He says, um, write another decree in the king's name, in behalf of the Jews, as it seems best for you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with this ring can be revoked. And so they went ahead and they put together. Now, there's an interesting thing here to look at as far as timeline goes. If we back up to the beginning of the story, the original decree to have the Jews killed was in the first month on the 13th day. When we see this decree that goes out here, verse number 9, it was on the 23rd of day of the third month. And so there's roughly been 70 days between the first decree and what's happening with this new decree. The question is, how did those 70 days play out? It's a little bit unclear. Because of the events that we see, they only take up about seven days. Like the original decree, it goes out the next day, it's like two days. Then we see the... the um, the reaction by Mordecai and everybody else, and you know how they were, they were weeping and mourning, and the city was mourning. How long did that last? A couple days? 
Then there's this conversation with Esther and Mordecai. You need to do something about it. Esther says, yes, I'll do something about it. And so she says, but first you have to fast for three days. Okay, so we've now got, what, six, seven days? And then she has the banquet. I didn't know, seventh, eighth day. And then we have all these events that happen over, overnight here. And then we get to the next day where now the king is given to Mordecai. We've only got, what, six, seven, eight, nine days of action there. But, but it's extended over the course of, of 70 days. And so we don't know if it all happened at the beginning or how it all came to play at the end. Or even when we get to Esther, who's now standing before the the king again, so we see that reverse structure again, standing before the king again saying, hey, you've got to save my people. But that gives us an interesting thing to think about here as we talk about this situation. And I can kind of imagine this, um, how it plays out where Esther has come back in before the king again, and maybe there's been a gap now of several weeks or even a couple of months. And maybe Esther's coming in saying, you know what? I thought we had this resolved, but this decree is still hanging out there. And maybe that's why we have this thing. It's like, okay, king, you got to do something about it. But I can just picture the conversation here. The queen comes in. The, the king raises the scepter and says, what, you, what is it that you want? And she says, I need you to spare my people. And the king's like, well, I had Haman executed. And she's like, yes, I know that, but there's still this decree, and we've been waiting for you to do something about it. We need you to revoke this law. And I wonder if the king doesn't ask this question. Well, who has the ring? And the, Esther says, well, Mordecai. And the king might say, well, then he's free to act whenever he wants. And there's a possibility that when that ring was given to Mordecai, he at that moment could do something about the plight of the Jews and didn't even realize it until Esther comes back maybe weeks or even months later and says, I need you to do something, king. And he's like, well, Mordecai has the ring. And I wonder sometimes in our stories if we are in the same situation where we're like waiting for something to happen and it's like, you have the ring? And in that moment that Mordecai had been given that ring, he had actually been given the ability to do something about the situation that they found themselves in. And so he, with the ring, with Esther, they get their heads together and they write out a new decree. And we see that um, in, in verse number uh, 9, they wrote out all of Mordecai's orders to the Jews, the satraps. And these orders were what? That they couldn't revoke the law, but what they could do instead is that the Jews, verse number 11, the Jews in every city had the right to assemble and to protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. And what the new law is, is we can't revoke the old one, but if they show up your door to try to kill you, you can act in self-defense. And that will be acceptable in the kingdom here. Which then, if you're like one of those people who's going to go kill off the Jews, you might want to have a second thought. And not only that, we've got like nine months before this is all going to happen. So these Jews, if they want to practice, you know, on self-defense, they can do that. But the point is that Esther and Mordecai have the ability to do something and they might not even realize it. 
And in your story, you may be holding a ring too, waiting for someone else to act when you actually have the means to take a step of action. And I don't know what it is where you might be waiting on God, and God's like, no, 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 I'm waiting on you in this situation. So Mordecai, anyhow, takes the ring and writes the decree. And when he left, in verse number 15, the king's presence, he was wearing the royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and purple a robe of fine linen he was wearing. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. And we see, again, this mirror image. Where in the first part we saw Mordecai in sackcloth, now we see him in royal robes. In the first part, we, we saw a city that was confused and bewildered, and now we see a city that's rejoicing. And all the way through this story, we have this mirror image going on. And so what this leads to, though, is actually the rescue of the Jews, and that's when God saved the queen. And we find out how it happens in chapter 9. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out, and on this day the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over all those who hated him. And the Jews assembled, and when these people came to attack, the Jews were able to defend themselves. And actually, it tells us that 500 of their enemies were killed in the city of Susa. And the next day, another 300 were killed. And across the whole kingdom of Persia, there were literally thousands of people who were killed on this day which seems harsh, but all of these people were the ones who were taking action against the Jews, and it was a self-defense thing. And so we see that the Jews are rescued, not because of what Esther has done, not because of the law that's been written, but because God is sovereign in the story. And when Mordecai, not, excuse me, and when Haman and some of his, his minions stood up against the Jews, God's like, mm-mm, that's not going to happen that way. In fact, we're going to take this story and we're going to twist it. We're going we're to twist it over and over and over again until at the other side of this thing, it's not the Jews that are killed, it's the enemies of the Jews that are actually killed off here. And that leads us to this next thing here. All of the reversals that we see in the story. So we have a ring for Esther. We have the rescue of the Jews. And then we have the reversals in the story. Think about this. First of all, Haman starts out with the ring. Mordecai gets the ring. Haman makes a decree. Mordecai makes a decree. The respect that Haman craved, who's the one who ends up getting it at the end? It's Mordecai who gets it. The gallows that Haman has built... He's the one who actually is killed on those gallows. At the beginning of the story, the Jews have no power. In fact, they're in big trouble. At the end of the story, the Jews have kind of incredible power, actually. The Jews are the ones who are supposed to be exterminated. It's the opposition that gets exterminated. And so we have this plot twist, this reversal all the way through it. But even when you talk about Esther herself, at the beginning of the story, we see Vashti, who's, who's humiliated as a woman. As the story goes on, we see Esther, who's elevated as a woman. We see an orphan girl who had no parents, who had no power, who was a victim, who had no voice, and who had no choice. And we see Esther at the end of the story as really being second in command. Now, supposedly Mordecai is, but Esther has every bit as much power and honor as what she does. We see a story that starts with incredible misogyny there as all the women are you know, told that they have to do this and they're actually giving permission to their husbands to just dominate them. 
And we see racism in the story. We see it totally changed around by the end of the story. We see this reversal. In fact, there's something interesting here if you want to do something uh, later. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse number 6, there's a story that follows this. And the story of Esther lands between the two returns of the Jews to the promised land from, from Babylon, which becomes Persia. So we have, we have uh, Zerubbabel in the first one, and then we have Ezra and Nehemiah in the second one. And this story is right in between. But if you look at Nehemiah in chapter 2, verse number 6, when he requests to go back, it tells us that he was sitting, or yes, he was sitting in the presence of the king and the queen who was by his side. There's like a shift in this whole way that, that, that the kingdom operates, where in Esther's story, she has to wait for the king to raise a scepter so that she can come in. By the next king, Artaxerxes, the son of Xerxes, there's nothing like that going on. The queen's just sitting there, which shows you some of the reversals that go on to the sto- in the story. But that's the encouragement to us, because wherever's going on in your story, too, there's always the possibility of reversal, because that's what God does. In fact, that's what God does really good at. God likes to take your situation, your story, and you're looking at it going, oh, this is never going to work. This is horrible. Or I'm just stuck here, I'm just stymied here, or I'm so frustrated, I've been trying here, and it's just never going to work out. And God comes with stories like Esther and says, oh, no, 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 look at this. Because I love to reverse things. And if you write a story, if you read a story, any good story is built on this idea of reversals. I mean, it's always like the villain's winning, right? Until something happens at the climax, and then we see on the other side of that, the whole thing is reversed and turned upside down. And this is the story of Esther, but this can be the story of you as well. Where are you struggling? What is it that's got you frustrated? What has got you defeated? What has got you beaten down? God is a God who reverses stories. And no situation is actually hopeless. And maybe that's what you need this morning, is simply hope to say, you know what? I have felt like this could just never work out, and I don't see how it could work out. If you look at this story at the beginning, it's pretty bleak. And God said, well, here, let me, let me do a little bit of editing. Let me do a little bit of writing. And in your story, God can write a reversal. The next thing that we see here is the responsibility of privilege. And this is a little bit where we started, where sometimes we look at this role of king or queens, like, I don't want that role because I don't want to be in charge because then I'm responsible for all these people. And, and if you understand leadership, you understand authority, you get that. It's a lot of pressure. And so sometimes we're like, I don't, you know, I, I, don't want to be the, I don't want to be the boss because then that's all on me, all these expectations. But the truth of the matter is, whether you want that or not, you already have that. If you have any role in, in your world where somebody is responsible to you, you already have this place of privilege and authority. If you're a parent, you've got it. If, if you're a, a boss or a manager or anybody where you work is reporting to you, you've got that situation. Even any place where you have influence, you have that same situation. And we need to recognize the fact that we do have privilege in life and that we do have opportunity in life and that it is our responsibility to use them well. 
And this is really the story of Esther is the fact that maybe she wasn't looking to be queen, but God put her in that role. And in that role, she made the most of it and became a positive influence and became a, a, a change agent actually in the kingdom. But let me say this again. We all have that opportunity because we all live with incredible privilege and we all live with incredible uh, resources. Uh, My guess is that every one of us slept underneath the roof last night with heat. Um, Maybe somebody walked this morning, probably not. Uh, You know, we we have all these things. I remember when my daughter Lindsay uh, did a study abroad in Uganda, the first morning after she came back, she was sitting on the couch in my living room drinking coffee, and she said to me, she said, Dad, nobody in Uganda has a house this nice. I'm like, you're right. And sometimes we forget all that we have and realize, and we forget that, that these resources that we're given are our invitation, and actually, it's the expectation that we use them for the greater good. This is why we do things like, why do we have an impact project going on this month? Don't we have needs here at Waterford Community Church that we need to take care of? Yes, we do. But guess what? The world has needs. And so there there are hungry families in in the Dominican that could actually use 12 chickens. And and there are pastors in India that that are trying to go from village to village. They could actually use a bicycle. And, And there are Families there that could actually use like a a, a source of income. So like a a sewing machine means something to them. And there are people that are still being trafficked in our world today that need somebody to rescue them. And there are refugees in Ukraine or from Ukraine who still need to be fed. And there are kids living in Ukraine that could go to camp this year. And why do we do these things? Because of the fact that with privilege comes responsibility. And we all have privilege. And we all have responsibility. And we all have opportunity. And so we need to take the resources, the positions, the abilities, the opportunities we have. Not use them for ourselves, but use them for other people. And in the process of that, God does something special in us. I think what's really interesting in this story is that God used Esther to change things. Kind of. Also what's interesting in this story is that God used things to change Esther. And we see a change in her. Actually, we see a change in her when she comes back before the, the, the king the second time. She's weeping and pleading, you have to save my people And we've never seen that emotion. We've never seen that heart in Esther before. But but that comes to the surface, and and we see how much she is changed by this situation. And so when we look at this, sometimes we look and say, oh, I don't want responsibility because it's going to be too much. No, we, we need to remember that that sometimes changes us. And we could deny our privilege, but we still have that. And sometimes that's what God uses to change us. And the story of Esther is not that, that God saved the queen from extermination. It's almost that God saved the queen from being what she might have been. And he made her something so much greater. The last thing we see in the story is actually the role of God. It's the redemptive storyline. And it's why on the front of your 
bullets in there. We always put the name of God in brackets because he never shows up in this story by name. Never once does God mention this entire story, and yet God shows up over and over and over and over again. So while this story is not about Esther, it's really a story about God. He is the lead character, and he continually reveals himself throughout this story as being sovereign. He reveals himself as being creative. He reveals himself as being timely. He reveals himself as being resourceful. He reveals himself as being intriguing. He reveals himself as being faithful. He reveals himself as being caring. He reveals himself as being a protector. He reveals himself as being the God who is involved. And we never see his name, but we just sense him. In every chapter, in every page. Because he is all of these things. But if he's all of these things in Esther's story, he can be all of these things in your story as well. And maybe God's not mentioned by name because we have to look a little bit deeper to actually see him in the story. But maybe that's what we need to do in our stories too, is we need to look a little bit deeper to say, oh, what is God doing in my story? And where is God at work in my story? And I'm, we had Calvin up here. I don't mean to embarrass you, Calvin. But, but there's more to Calvin's story than what we're sharing up here. But part of Calvin's story is how God's like, okay, you know what? This is going to be part of my story. And there's something that I want to do at, at OCC. And you know what? I'm going to use this guy right here. And, and as you look at this, you see how God orchestrates our story. And we need to be looking for that. Secondly, while this is a story about Esther, it's also a story about God's people. Esther is, plays a key role, but what God's doing is he's saving the entire Jewish race. And why is that important? Well, because there was a Messiah that was still coming. And if, if Haman succeeds in this story, we're not sitting here today. But Haman wasn't ever going to succeed. Because it was always about God's people. And he preserved the Jewish race and he preserved the, the race of the Messiah. And the Messiah did come and the Messiah still lives today in heaven, and he offers salvation because that's who the story is about. And lastly here, while the story is about Esther, it's really a story about you. God is writing your story. And your story may not make it into a book, and it may not make it into the screen, but it's no less significant, and it's no less crafted. Your story is every bit as important as Esther's story was. And your story is every bit as much crafted. Now, maybe not as spectacular, and maybe you don't see all the plot twists and whatever else you like, but it's the same author that's writing your story, too. And maybe you can't see him, and maybe you're not even understanding some of these reversals, but it's the same God who writes our story. So while this is the story of Esther saving her people, this is really the story of God saving Esther and her people. It's the story of when God saved the queen. Let's pray. And so, Father, we just pause at the end of the service here. We kind of ran through a lot of stuff really fast. But we ask that your Holy Spirit would take whatever was said, whatever is part of this story that really needs to be heard, 
from the heart. And I pray that you would just make that obvious. So as you sit here this morning with your eyes closed, the time of reflection, what did God's Spirit say to you? Where did He speak? Maybe it was just encouragement. Maybe it was a challenge. Maybe it's the fact that you have a ring on your finger and you're just waiting. But waiting for what? Maybe it's just that reminder that God is actually the author of your story. Maybe it's the fact that that you can be looking for reversals because God does reversals. I don't know what it is, but what is it that God's speaking to you this morning? And if you're not a follower of God, of Jesus Christ, he wants to reverse your life by giving you hope instead of despair. He wants to give you forgiveness instead of guilt. He wants to give you eternal life instead of eternal death. He wants to turn all of those things upside down for you. If you'll just put your faith and trust in him, invite him into your life. Personal conversations between you and Jesus. Jesus, I believe you came, died for me, rose again. So that was for me, and I want to accept you and ask you to forgive my sins. You can do that where you sit. But what is the decision that you need to make today? I want to encourage you to make that. God, as we finish out the service here, even in song, I pray that you would speak to us in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.